This is a recording of A Man That Can Translate, An Infinite Goodness, A Response to Recent Reviews, by Jonathan E. Neville, published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, read by Jonathan E. Neville. A Man That Can Translate, An Infinite Goodness, A Response to Recent Reviews, Jonathan E. Neville. Abstract. Since 1829, various theories about the production of the Book of Mormon have been proposed. Modern scholarship has moved away from the idea that Joseph Smith actually translated ancient engravings into English. Two books, A Man That Can Translate and Infinite Goodness, propose a, quote, neo-Orthodox, close quote, view, offering evidence that Joseph did translate ancient engravings into English. Recent reviews in the interpreter of these two books significantly misunderstand and misrepresent the argument. This response corrects some of those misperceptions. Editor's note, we are pleased to present this response to two recent book reviews in the pages of Interpreter. Consistent with practice in many academic journals, we are also publishing a rejoinder from the author of those reviews immediately following this response. Spencer Krauss recently penned separate reviews of two of my books, A Man That Can Translate and Infinite Goodness. These companion volumes make a case for Joseph Smith as the actual translator of the ancient engravings on Nephite plates. Because the books introduce the demonstration hypothesis to reconcile disparate historical accounts, they have generated considerable discussion, both positive and negative, and I welcome robust, respectful, and candid dialogue about these topics. The demonstration hypothesis offers a faithful alternative reconciliation of the conflict between, one, what Joseph and Oliver claimed, that Joseph translated the plates with the Urim and Thummim that came with the plates, and, two, what others claimed, that Joseph produced the Book of Mormon by dictating words that appeared on a stone he placed in a hat. In my books, I propose that Joseph, who had covenanted with God not to display the plates or the Urim and Thummim, D&C 5.3, used the seer stone to satisfy the awful curiosity of his supporters by demonstrating how the actual translation worked. Later, some of these supporters conflated the demonstration with the translation to refute the allegations of the Spalding theory. While I appreciate the attention brought to the demonstration hypothesis by Krauss's reviews, they seriously misrepresent the purpose and content of my books. Because the interpreter serves as an academic record of Latter-day Saint thought, clarification is appropriate, and I appreciate the interpreter publishing this brief response. In his review of Infinite Goodness, Krauss summarizes his review of a man that can translate, quote, my previous review responded to his claims that, one, Joseph Smith memorized and recited Isaiah from memory rather than translate it from the Book of Mormon record. Two, Joseph tricked his close friends and family, making them believe he was translating the aforementioned sections of the Book of Mormon. Three, many witnesses to the Book of Mormon are not to be believed. And four, we should instead rely on sources hostile to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, to properly understand Joseph's translation effort. Close quote. These caricatures of my proposals are inaccurate, as I discussed shortly. Because Krauss's claims and my response are best evaluated in context, specifically the ongoing faith crises generated by confusion about the origins of the Book of Mormon, 
We need to review the context Krauss omitted from his reviews. Context, competing narratives about the origin of the Book of Mormon. At the outset, I recognize that, for many people, the origin of the Book of Mormon doesn't matter because they have a spiritual witness of its truthfulness. That's a perfectly legitimate approach that I take no issue with. For other people, however, the origin of the Book of Mormon is a foundation upon which to build either belief or unbelief. Joseph Smith apparently thought the origin was important. His declaration that he translated the Book of Mormon record, quote, through the medium of, close quote, and, quote, by the means of, close quote, quote, the Urim and Thummim, close quote, that came with the plates, is a fundamental truth claim that can be tested not only spiritually, but empirically by consulting historical references, linguistic studies, extrinsic scientific data, etc. Joseph didn't make his specific claims in a vacuum. The 1834 book titled Mormonism Unveiled had set out the stone and the hat theory in some detail. Quote, the translation finally commenced. They were found to contain a language not now known upon the earth, which they termed Reformed Egyptian characters. The plates, therefore, which had been so much talked of, were found to be of no manner of use. After all, the Lord showed and communicated to him, Joseph, every word and letter of the book. Instead of looking at the characters inscribed upon the plates, the prophet was obliged to resort to the old peep stone, which he formerly used in money digging. This he placed in the hat, or box, into which he also thrust his face. Through the stone he could then discover a single word at a time, which he repeated aloud to his amanuensis, who committed it to paper, when another word would immediately appear, and thus the performance continued to the end of the book. Close quote. This description of the stone and the hat theory is familiar to modern Latter-day Saints because it is now the prevailing narrative among many LDS scholars. Continuing on the same page, Mormonism Unveiled provided readers a second alternative description of the translation based on the Urim and Thummim explanation that Joseph and Oliver always gave, albeit embellished with sarcasm. Quote, Another account they give of the translation is that it was performed with the big spectacles before mentioned, and which were, in fact, the identical Urim and Thummim mentioned in Exodus 28-30, and were brought away from Jerusalem by the heroes of the book, handed down from one generation to another, and finally buried up in Ontario County some 15 centuries since to enable Smith to translate the plates without looking at them. Close quote. In a sense, this alternative narrative is also a stone in the hat theory, that is, the spectacles in a hat theory. But as Mormonism Unveiled explained, the distinction is insignificant if both scenarios ignored the plates. Quote, now whether the two methods for translating, one by a pair of stone spectacles set in the rims of a bow and the other by one stone, were provided against accident, we cannot determine. Perhaps they were limited in their appropriate uses. At all events, the plan meets our approbation. We are informed that Smith used a stone and a hat for the purpose of translating the plates. The spectacles and the plates were found together, but were taken from him and hit up again before he had translated one word, and he has never seen them since. This is Smith's own story. Let us ask, what use have the plates been or the spectacles so long as they have in no sense been used? 
or what does the testimony of Martin Harris, Oliver Cowdery, and David Whitmer amount to? Close quote. In his first review, Krauss provides the following abstract. Quote, this is the first of two papers that explore Jonathan Neville's two latest books regarding the translation of the Book of Mormon. Neville has long argued that Joseph Smith did not use a seer stone during the translation of the Book of Mormon, and he has more recently expanded his historical revisionism to dismiss the multitude of historical sources that include the use of a seer stone. Close quote. We see how far, quote, historical revisionism, close quote, has come when modern LDS scholars deem a traditional understanding based on what Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery said, that Joseph translated the plates by means of the Nephite interpreters, is now considered historical revisionism, while the stone and the hat theory narrative from Mormonism unveiled is deemed the only acceptable faithful narrative. Krauss claims that I dismiss the stone and the hat sources is a, as an allegation which I'll address below. Conflict, Joseph and Oliver versus other witnesses. The fulcrum of the translation issue is the direct conflict between what Joseph and Oliver claimed versus what others, the original stone and the hat theory proponents, claimed they observed. On three notable occasions, post-Mormonism unveiled, Joseph Smith provided an explanation of the translation that leaves no room for the stone and the hat theory. Because Joseph's teachings have been omitted from many discussions of this issue, including from Krauss's review, we need to quote them here. Quote, How and where did you obtain the Book of Mormon? Moroni, the person who deposited the plates from which the Book of Mormon was translated, in a hill in Manchester, Ontario County, New York, being dead, and raised again therefrom, appeared unto me, and told me where they were, and gave me directions how to obtain them. I obtained them, and the Urim and Thummim with them, by the means of which I translated the plates, and thus came the Book of Mormon." Close quote. Quote, with the records was found a curious instrument, which the ancients called Urim and Thummim, which consisted of two transparent stones set in the rim of a bow, fastened to a breastplate, through the medium of the Urim and Thummim, I translated the record by the gift and power of God. Close quote. For space reasons, I'll omit Oliver's corroborating statements. The key point here is that had Joseph merely used the term Urim and Thummim without specifying the origin of the instrument, modern historians who seek to conflate the term with the peepstone of Mormonism unveiled might have a plausible argument. But Joseph specified that the sole instrument he used to translate came with the plates. There are three basic explanations for the Book of Mormon. Proponents of each find support in historical documentation, which indicates the evidence is inconclusive and can support multiple working hypotheses. Number one, Joseph Smith translated the ancient engravings into English using translate in the ordinary sense of the word of converting the meaning of a manuscript written in one language into another language. Number two, Joseph Smith and or Confederates composed the text and Joseph read it surreptitiously, recited it from memory, or performed it based on prompts or cues. Number three, Joseph Smith dictated words that supernaturally appeared on a seer stone he placed in a hat. Until recently, explanation number one was the faithful explanation, while explanations numbers two and three were the critical or unbelieving explanations. 
Lately, Explanation 3 has been embraced by many believers, including Krauss, as a faithful explanation that replaces Explanation 1. Nevertheless, any of these explanations can be accepted by faithful Latter-day Saints. No one ought to be shunned or accused of apostasy for assigning different weight to particular historical evidence than someone else. The underlying premise of Krauss's reviews in my books, that Explanation 3 is the only acceptable explanation, both explains the tone of the reviews and misses the entire point of my books. I simply sought to determine whether the historical evidence could be construed to be congruent with what Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery said about the translation. In other words, Explanation 1. In my books, I readily recognize and discuss the evidence in favor of Explanation number 3. I differ with Krauss and other proponents of the stone and the hat theory because I find that evidence unpersuasive, not only on its face, but because it contradicts what Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery claimed. Krauss's Allegations To return to Krauss's specific allegations, let me repeat his recap that I earlier quoted. Quote, my previous review responded to his claims that, one, Joseph Smith memorized and recited from Isaiah from memory rather than translate it from the Book of Mormon record. Two, Joseph Smith tricked his close friends and family, making them believe that he was translating the aforementioned sections of the Book of Mormon. Three, many witnesses to the Book of Mormon are not to be believed. And four, we should instead rely on sources hostile to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to properly understand Joseph's translation effort. In the following sections, I'll examine these four allegations in turn. Number one, Joseph Smith memorized and recited Isaiah from memory rather than translated from the Book of Mormon record. Cross's argument is a semantic mess because he argues that Joseph read words off a seer stone instead of translating the Book of Mormon record. Nevertheless, in a man that can translate, I observed in a passage that Krauss forgot to quote that, quote, there are multiple accounts of Joseph putting a stone in a hat, covering his face with the hat, and then reading out loud the words that appeared on the stone. The accounts lack specifics about times and dates. None mentioned what words Joseph actually dictated during the observed performance, so it is impossible to determine what portion of the Book of Mormon was being dictated if, in fact, it was Book of Mormon text. Close quote. I proceeded to observe that, if what Joseph dictated on these occasions is actually in our Book of Mormon, the evidence suggests it was some part of the Isaiah chapters in 2 Nephi, such as 2 Nephi 16 and 17. I cited a previous article in Interpreter that points out that there are, quote, 20, there are 29 differences or variants in these two Book of Mormon chapters relative to the King James Version. None of these variants has any obvious purpose or value. Certainly, none clarifies Isaiah's message or substantially improves the grammar, close quote. Stone and the Hat proponents, including Krauss, argue that Joseph did not translate these chapters from the plates using the Aram and Thummim. This leaves two alternatives. Either Joseph dictated those chapters by reading them off the seer stone or from memory. Which alternative is correct is unknowable, but I lean toward memory, because whatever Joseph was doing with the seer stone, it was, by his own declarations, not translating the plates. Number two, Joseph Smith tricked his close friends and family, making them believe that he was translating the aforementioned sections of the Book of Mormon. 
I never wrote nor implied that Joseph tricked anyone. As we've seen, by at least 1834, the stone and the hat narrative coexisted with the alternative Urim and Thummim narrative. The demonstration hypothesis reconciles these with two components. The first is that Joseph was under a strict command not to display the plates or the Urim and Thummim, a command he repeated openly and inexplicably if he never used the Urim and Thummim or the plates. The second, as Zenas Gurley put it, quote, that Joseph had another stone called seer stone and peach stone is quite certain. This stone was frequently exhibited to different ones and helped to assuage their awful curiosity, but the Urim and Thummim never, unless possibly to Oliver Cowdery, close quote. Throughout the book, I discuss the differences between what a witness observed and what that witness inferred or assumed. Again, if what Joseph dictated during the Stone in the Hat sessions is actually in our Book of Mormon, I propose that he introduced the sessions by explaining that he was going to show the audience how the translation process worked. I further propose that they all understood this, but decades later, under the duress of the prevailing Spalding theory, the Stone in the Hat witnesses cited the Stone in the Hat sessions to refute the Spalding theory. Thus, what was once perfectly clear that Joseph demonstrated the process while conducting the actual translation in seclusion using the Urim and Thummim and the plates, was conflated by a handful of Joseph's associates in a misguided apologetic effort. There was no trickery on Joseph's part. To the contrary, Joseph and Oliver both explicitly explained that Joseph translated the plates with the Urim and Thummim that came with the plates. Whatever people incorrectly inferred about the stone and the hat was not the fault of Joseph and Oliver. Number three, many witnesses to the Book of Mormon are not to be believed. This allegation misrepresents one of the key points of my books. To repeat, throughout the books I discuss the differences between what a witness observed and what that witness inferred or assumed. The modern proponents of the stone and the hat theory have long taken the statements of the stone and the hat witnesses out of context and accepted them on their face two errors that may be common, but are nevertheless inexcusable. While some authors do reject outright what the Stone and the Hat witnesses said, just as the modern proponents of the Stone and the Hat theory currently reject what Joseph and Oliver said, I prefer to accept what the witnesses claimed they observed, but distinguish between what they observed and what they inferred or assumed. This is an important distinction that contemporaneous cross-examined would have brought out. Because we're dealing with historical records, we rely on careful analysis to separate the two elements of a witness's statement, which I've done throughout the book. Number four, we should rely on sources hostile to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to properly understand Joseph's translation effort. It's difficult to know what to make of this allegation. In my view, as explained in the books, the primary source for understanding Joseph's translation effort is what Joseph and Oliver said about the translation, including the three statements by Joseph I quoted above. Other sources are ancillary, vague, muddled, and self-contradictory, and they mix observation with inference. Yet in his review, Krauss never once quotes what Joseph and Oliver said about the translation. Instead, he relies on the stone and the hat sources and parrots Mormonism unveiled's explanation of the stone and the hat theory. This brief response cannot possibly address all the details of Krauss's 24,000 plus word reviews, 
Most of Krauss's objections involve different weighting of the evidence, and I invite readers to consider that weighting. If and when I do a detailed review, I'll post it on academia.edu. With regard to Krauss's review of infinite goodness, Krauss has misrepresented the premise and conclusions of the book. I view the influence of Edwards as solid evidence that Joseph translated the plates, i.e., this evidence corroborates Joseph's account and contradicts the stone in the hat theory. Briefly, here are excerpts from Krauss's abstract with my responses. Krauss's abstract, quote, This is the second of two papers reviewing Jonathan Neville's latest books on the translation of the Book of Mormon. In Infinite Goodness, Neville claims that Joseph Smith's vocabulary and translation of the Book of Mormon were deeply influenced by the famous Protestant minister Jonathan Edwards. Neville cites various words or ideas that he believes originate with Edwards as the original source for the Book of Mormon's language. My response, quote, Throughout the book, I emphasize that Joseph Smith's translation was the original source for the language of the Book of Mormon because I believe he translated the plates using his own lexicon while guided by Revelation, DNC 9. Edwards was one of several influences on Joseph Smith, just as each of us learns our respective native languages from a variety of influences. Krauss's Abstract However, most of Neville's findings regarding Edwards and other non-biblical sources are superficial and weak, and many of his findings have a more plausible common source, the language used by the King James Bible. My response. This caricature of my findings is incoherent because, one, although Krauss claimed most of my findings are superficial and weak, he did not consult my database of over 1,000 non-biblical terms and phrases used by Edwards, which are found in the Book of Mormon. And two, the database focuses specifically on terms and phrases not found in the King James Bible. My separate biblical intertextual database, which Krauss also did not consult, includes several examples of rephrasing and blending of biblical passages that are found in the works of Edwards, suggesting Edwards was a closer source than the King James Version itself. Furthermore, Krauss's review invokes sources not known to be readily available to Joseph. Uh, Joseph Smith. Generational Divide in the Ongoing Problem The Krauss reviews reflect a generational divide in Latter-day Saint understanding of church history and the historicity of the Book of Mormon. Recently, someone of my generation, responding to the demonstration hypothesis, remarked, quote, You mean that everything I was taught about the translation was true? Close quote. Younger generations who have been taught the stone and the hat theory respond to the demonstration hypothesis by saying, quote, you mean that everything I was taught about the stone and the hat was wrong, close quote? This is obviously an oversimplification. There are older people who accept the stone and the hat theory and younger people who reject the stone and the hat theory, but the origin of the Book of Mormon remains at the forefront of issues related to conversion, retention, and activity. Latter-day Saints deserve to know about alternative faithful interpretations of the historical evidence so they can make informed decisions for themselves. To be sure, these discussions should have no bearing on an individual standing as a Latter-day Saint. None of these rise to the level of temple recommend questions. None impede or enhance one's ability to serve in church callings, to minister to others, or to love, share, and invite. Nevertheless, the problems with the stone and the hat theory are not merely academic exercises. They strike at the keystone of our religion in two fundamental ways. 
Number one, the stone in the hat theory repudiates what Joseph explicitly taught. The problems with the stone in the hat theory were outlined in the 1834 book Mormonism Unveiled. Joseph and Oliver apparently recognized the implications because they both taught that Joseph translated the record by means of the Urim and Thummim that came with the record. Their explanation left no room for another translation instrument. Modern efforts to conflate the Urim and Thummim with the stone from the well directly contradict what Joseph and Oliver taught. Number two, the stone in the hat theory replaces the ancient origins of the Book of Mormon with mystical origins. The stone in the hat theory teaches that Joseph produced the Book of Mormon by dictating words that appeared on a stone he put in a hat. The second point is critical because a key element of the stone in the hat theory is that Joseph did not consult the plates during the dictation. Looking at the stone in the hat theory from an objective perspective, once the text Joseph dictated is detached from the ancient plates, the focus becomes the source of the words on the stone. Believers axiomatically argue it is a divine source. Non-believers axiomatically argue it is another source, whether Joseph's imagination, a performance based on an outline, or even, for non-LDS religious believers, an evil or mischievous entity. Thus, replacing the ancient origins with mystical origins allows the readers to confirm whatever bias they want. In my view, Joseph and Oliver did not leave us with a murky origin of the Book of Mormon. In these books, I have proposed a new way to reconcile the stone and the hat account with what Joseph and Oliver said, now known as the demonstration hypothesis. This approach has engendered many misunderstandings as exemplified in the Krauss Review. I encourage readers to consider the evidence for themselves. This has been a recording of A Man That Can Translate an Infinite Goodness, a response to recent reviews by Jonathan E. Neville, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, Volume 53, 2022, read by Jonathan E. Neville. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its website are credited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.